This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The Republican-controlled Legislative Budget Committee blocked a plan by Governor Tony Evers yesterday that would have laid out how the state would spend their portion of money received from a massive opioid settlement. The Associated Press reports that the state is set to receive $31 million as a part of the multi-state lawsuit. Evers' plan would have allowed the state to spend money on Narcan, a drug that can reverse overdose effects, and the money would also be spent on building treatment facilities and helping to address overdose deaths in tribal nations. The two two Republicans in the committee said that they rejected the plan because they wanted to improve the plan, but they did not elaborate on which parts they wanted to improve. The UW Board of Regents voted in favor of requesting over $24 million from the state legislature today to help fund the new Wisconsin tuition promise, the Capital Times reports. The Wisconsin Tuition Promise is a new program that aims to allow in-state low-income families to attend any UW school for free. The program is set to begin next year. But whether the Republican-led legislature will approve of that money is not known. In 2020, former UW System President Tommy Thompson sought money to help fund the program, but the legislature ultimately rejected the proposal. If you intend on going into any Dane County hospitals, be sure to bring your mask. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that several area hospitals announced that they will continue to require masks in their facilities in a joint statement today. While Dane County no longer has a COVID mask mandate in place, the county does have a high level of community COVID spread, according to the CDC. Hospitals will also continue to limit visitors in their buildings. Also from the State Journal, the Dane County Board is set to decide on a plan for the new Dane County Jail at their meeting this evening. The the board will vote on one of three plans tonight. The first put out by the Dane County Black Caucus, which would bring a smaller jail that is more in line with the current projected budget. It would also bring with it a slew of criminal justice reforms aimed at ending racial disparities within the jail system. The second is a vote to approve additional funding for the jail, bringing the total price tag to the jail up to $174 million. That's 10, more, that's 10 million more than what the board approved earlier this year, and that was 24 million more than what the board approved in 2019. Finally, the third option is to put that budget amendment before the voters for a referendum on the November ballot. Tonight's board meeting begins at 7 p.m. And finally, the city of Madison is holding a candidate forum this evening for the candidates in contention to become the city's first independent police monitor. The independent monitor is a position created to work with the Police Civilian Oversight Board to provide citizens with the means to monitor the Madison Police Department. This is not the first time the city has attempted to hire an independent monitor. They had originally intended to hire a civil rights attorney with the city earlier this year, who later withdrew their candidacy, restarting the whole process. The meeting is happening right now and is pre-recorded for you to watch at a later date. And you can find that meeting on the City of Madison website. And now on to today's top stories.
Monkeypox is a virus often painful with often with painful symptoms that spreads primarily through prolonged skin to skin contact. At the moment, the virus is mainly circulating among men who have sex with men. For a look into why that is and what that means for the LGBTQ community, reporter Emily Kaysinger picks up the story. Cases of monkeypox are rising both nationally and here in Wisconsin. As of yesterday, there have been 13,517 cases of monkeypox in the U.S., with 47 of those in Wisconsin, according to the CDC and Wisconsin Department of Health Services. As monkeypox spreads, so too does the harmful stigma around the virus. Monkeypox, a smallpox-related virus that is transmitted from person to person through long periods of skin-to-skin contact, is currently spreading mostly among men who have sex with men. Because of this, a misconception has formed in some segments of the public that monkeypox is a quote-unquote gay disease. This misconception is hurtful to the LGBTQ community. A.J. Hardy, the program director of Outreach LGBTQ Community Center, explained this to me. We've already seen this association with monkeypox as being something that is a sort of like queer person's problem, which at the moment it is, you know, the the vast majority of cases are in men who have sex with men. But it is a disease that is just transmitted through prolonged contact, especially with the exposed lesions. And so it's something that can affect anyone. It's just as of right now, because of the way that our social networks work, like our social systems that we have and our networks of communication and interaction, it's primarily impacting one community. And that impact can lead people to be more reluctant to seek out care, he said. But that can be incredibly stigmatizing for people, especially if they're closeted or, you know, if they're not out to certain people in their lives. It can make it difficult to do things like talk to a healthcare provider about even safer sex practices, but also about getting vaccinated. Or it can make it really high risk for people to go and stand in line outside of a vaccine clinic. This misconception of monkeypox is also misleading. I spoke with Dr. A.J. Sethi, professor of population health sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, about monkeypox. When I broached this topic, he had this to say. Anybody with skin can be infected with this virus because the virus really doesn't discriminate. The stigma is unfortunate. Unfortunately, we have too many people in our society that, you know, use information like this as a way to continue to discriminate and maybe even hate on groups in our communities. And that's wrong. It's something that we shouldn't do. He explains that the reason the virus is largely isolated to men who have sex with men is due to a confluence of coincidence. Why is it in men who have sex with men right now? A lot of it has to do with chance. There was an opportunity this year as we were kind of coming out of the pandemic and people are resuming their lives. And also June, which was Pride Month, there were probably a lot of events around the world where people got together uh, and events that were also associated with people having intimate contact, people having sex. And those kinds of events, you know, have been occurring for centuries. So it just happened that there's this perfect storm where people are getting together. One person has the virus because it made its way into uh, that person and in the community. And when you get that kind of spark, then the right conditions can cause a spread of that virus. And that's what's happened. And I think we should all just remember that it's not all men who have sex with men who have a risk for monkeypox. If someone is not sexually active or they're in a monogamous relationship, they're at low risk for this virus. It's really people who have more casual sex, have multiple partners, particularly recently. People who do contract the virus, usually first developing flu-like symptoms and then a rash, should see their healthcare providers to discuss treatments and pain management options. 
Public Health Madison and Dane County is offering vaccinations by appointment as well. Dr. Sethi emphasizes that this is important because men who have sex with men are part of our communities and we want everybody in our community to be healthy. And LGBTQ Madisonians make up a vibrant part of the city's community, one that is both worth protecting and celebrating. Hardy shares his experience being trans in Madison like this. In my experience, um, Madison has a really active and engaged LGBTQ plus community that's really, you know, takes care of each other really well and is concerned with the well-being of, of one another and very supportive. Um, I think that, you know, in my experience as being a, a trans person here, I've been able to find a really solid community that provides a lot of resources for each other and then also just a lot of emotional support as well. He says the biggest issue the Madison LGBTQ community faces is discrimination, especially in access to resources like housing or health care. And monkeypox maps onto these issues in ways that can compound these barriers. The new concern about monkeypox fits into the larger picture um, and larger situation of the queer community right now in a couple of ways, right? We have these existing health disparities where queer people tend to have, and especially queer people of color, tend to have less access to health care and a harder time finding the care that they need or the care that they want. And then it also fits in with the increase in discrimination that people have been facing, especially legal attacks or attempts at legal discrimination of different legislation that's been passed targeting the queer community. I'm in a really elevated sort of elevated level of rhetoric aimed at the queer community coming from, you know, certain parts of the United States. Monkeypox comes at a time where LGBTQ people are vulnerable. Last year, the Wisconsin legislature proposed an ultimately failed bill requiring parents be notified and able to opt their children out of, quote, any program related to sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or gender expression. More recently, on July 8th, the state Supreme Court ruled in favor of a contested school policy that provides support for trans and gender nonconforming students after a group of parents challenged the policy. And within this larger environment, the mental health of LGBTQ people takes a toll. Earlier this year, a survey by the U.S. Census Bureau found that nearly a third of LGBTQ Wisconsinites reported experiencing depression, quote, nearly every day. This is the sixth highest rate in the nation. The developing stigma of monkeypox adds to that vulnerability through discrimination by others, through isolation or fear of being out, happening simultaneously as anti-LGBTQ legal attacks gain traction. Hardy says the community has been here before and is drawing on that previous experience as a source of strength. I think probably as a result of decades and centuries of of discrimination against queer people of of all identities, and especially the experiences of people who lived through the HIV AIDS epidemic, the worst of it in the 80s, the, the queer community is very resilient. We take care of one another. We provide support to one another financially, emotionally, physically, mentally, all of these things. And a lot of the same people that were involved with and, and have been involved with the response to HIV AIDS over the last several decades are the same people that are kind of at the forefront of a lot of these discussions about monkeypox and how it's spread. And so like there are people that have been doing this work for a long time 
and we're able to rely on that. But we're also still trying to get our bearings and still trying to deal with a situation that's very, very rapidly evolving as far as the community spread levels, the availability of vaccine doses, the information and the guidance we're getting about who's eligible for the vaccine. And I think it's really important in these instances for people to have places that they can trust and people that they can trust. And for a lot of queer people, that means other queer people. If you live in Dane County and believe you're eligible for a vaccine, you can call Public Health at 608-243-0556. Reporting for WORT News, this is Emily Kaysinger. It's now 6.19 p.m., And you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In 2017, the city of Madison committed to their first three all-electric buses. Now, while they finally arrived in 2020, the three buses are still sitting in a warehouse waiting for needed repairs before they can hit the road. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout spoke with Allison Garfield, reporter with the Capital Times, about what she found about why the buses are sitting unused over two years after their arrival to Madison. So, Allison, electric buses, let's just start all of this off with some backstory. This whole sort of tale here sort of began in 2017, correct? Yes. Um, In 2017, uh, the city of Madison announced that um, it was going to retire three of its diesel buses um, and replace them with all-electric buses instead. And so now these three buses that the city was going to make, uh, they went through Proterra. They're they're the group that are going to be making the or already made the three electric buses for Madison. And when these buses were eventually sent to Madison, they had all sorts of issues, correct? Uh, Can you sort of walk me through some of the issues that these buses had? Absolutely. So um, Madison, the city's um, metro staff and department ordered three electric buses from Proterra um, between 2018 and 2019. And they arrived in the city uh, in the summer of 2020. And uh, right away, um, there were some issues that became apparent. Um, One of them was having to do with paint quality. um, And then there was another one having to do Um, with protruding windows, and they needed to be sent back to a South Carolina warehouse run by Proterra. Um, And basically, all of those issues, (laughs) various issues, kept popping up between their arrival in 2020 and just this last uh, spring or so. And the most um, time-consuming, I would say, issue... um, 
had to do with vertical stanchions um, and their positions on the bus. So those are the poles that um, someone would hold on to while they're riding the bus for stability or um, anything like that. And the poles were in a place um, that made uh, the the buses inaccessible for wheelchair um, users. Um, it made it hard for them, those wheelchairs, to kind of just physically fit on the bus. Um, so it was, uh, I believe, um, from June 2021 until just this past April, um, Madison Metro worked out um, an agreement with Proterra, the manufacturers, to do a complete redesign and retrofitting of the three electric buses so that those poles would be in a new position that was not blocking wheelchair access. And now, how does did, did, were you able to find out how this sort of thing happened? I mean, this company has been making electric buses since 2008, so uh, over a decade by the time the order came in. How how did they make such a an oversight like that? And did did that show up in any other cities that also got buses from Proterra? That's a great question, um, and I wish I had the answer. Actually, um, at least in my communication with Proterra, when Writing this story, um, they they um, told the Cap Times that all of their buses, uh, you know, are meeting ADA requirements, which is the American Disabilities Act. So they, in their statement, which was somewhat brief to the Cap Times, um, they say that all of their buses, including the ones that were sent to Madison, meet ADA requirements. Um, and in my research, I did not find any other cities that had this issue. So it is kind of maybe confusing for some um, how this happened. Um, and the city staff were pretty adamant that this was not an issue on their end. And then Proterra said that uh, their buses are all you know, in in guidance and in regulation with ADA. So it's a bit of a a bit of a mystery that part about how this happens in the first place. So how how it happened that just our three specific buses came to be this way, so at least at this point, still sort of sitting as a mystery. Uh, so then going through your article there, then you sort of get into uh, and you talk with disability activists here in Madison, specifically when it comes to sort of like transportation and things like that. What tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I spoke to several activists in the city um, and even the city's brand new um, disability rights and services specialist um, about kind of the, the implications of this. Um, and there have been issues with Madison buses before and, and accessibility. Uh, folks most recently have um, kind of pushed back against the the city's metro redesign plan, which, um, you know, just is a, I don't know any other word for it. It's a redesign of bus routes in the city um, to make service more reliable and to help kind of supplement the city's impending bus rapid transit system. And one of the trade-offs of this 
more reliable system is that some of the bus stops are going to be further apart, which makes it harder for some folks, um, whether they're, you know, elderly folks or folks with disabilities, uh, get to their desired bus stop. You know, it, it activists, um, specifically Katie Sullivan, who, um, who works with Disability Pride Madison, has been really vocal about the disproportionate burden that places on people with disabilities. So there, that's, you know, an issue that has been voiced um, over the past four to six months, I would say. And I think with this on top of it, um, hearing about a whole new issue um, that, you know, it's it's unclear where the responsibility lies here, but just having a situation where that that places even maybe more burden or could place more burden on folks with disabilities um, and has since been rectified. But um, having that pop up, I think uh, I think the words that uh, Katie Sullivan used to, <laughs> to call the situation was appalling and archaic. So I think some people. Um, have strong feelings about this and and general accessibility issues in the city and with the Metro Department. And so now just sort of wrapping things up a little bit here, uh, Alice, and I just have one last uh, real question for you here. And it seems like uh, the city sort of tried to keep all of this sort of under wraps, like they didn't really want people to know about all of the issues that these three buses were experiencing. And even other people in city government seem to be kept in the dark about some of the issues. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Certainly. Yeah. So I'm not sure exactly how much information has been shared with with city staff. I did speak to some members of the city's transportation commission who didn't know all the details, but knew that, you know, there were major delays with these electric buses. Um, And in speaking with the city's metro department, uh, their director said that because this issue was never, these buses were never in operation while there was an issue with those vertical stanchions or anything like that. Um, and because it never directly affected passengers because the buses weren't operational, um, there wasn't a need to to share that information. And, and folks can choose whether they agree or disagree with that. Um, and I think the thinking was that there, these are three buses. It makes around um, 1% of the city's you know, bus fleet. So in the grand scheme of things, it's only a few buses. But... Um, because these issues were identified and then fixed and never impacted residents in the city, I think maybe that was the thinking of why this was not going to be shared publicly. And and the part that was shared, of course, was that there are delays in getting these buses on the road. Um, so I, I hope the, the cap time story just sheds some more light on, on the reasons behind that um, and will hopefully clear that up for some people. I've been talking with Allison Garfield, reporter over at the Capital Times, about her new story about the long road the city has traveled on trying to get their first three all-electric buses. You can read the full story online right now over at captimes.com. Allison, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Thanks for having me. 
The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, our contributor, Jonah Chester, sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and government transparency. This week on Transparency Talk, they cover how Wisconsin's open records laws apply to quasi-governmental corporations. Now, a quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this week? Jonah, it's been a good week, and I'm looking forward to vacation next week. Ooh, vacation time. I uh, I really, I need a vacation, TBH. Do you mind if I ask where you're going? Puerto Rico. Ooh. Taking the whole lovely. family. We're doing the, the, the big thing is the bioluminescent bays on Vieques Island. That is a heck of a vacation, Tom. Uh, but you know what? Before you can kick back on those beautiful sandy beaches that sometimes glow in Puerto Rico, we got one more episode of Transparency Talk to get through before your vacation. And today we're talking about, you know, something I would argue is even better than a vacation of Puerto Rico, uh, open records laws and how they relate to quasi-governmental corporations. Now, Tom, you know, I think I know what a quasi-governmental corporation is, but can you fill us in on the details? What exactly is that? Well, before before I give you the details, if you just heard that term, what would you think it meant? So I'm thinking something like the Postal Service. <laughs> the United States Postal Service. Uh, it's a federal one, uh, not a state one, so I'm not exactly sure how it would apply. But yeah, it's something created by the government to form a, perform a government function, but it's kind of operating sort of independently. And, you know, here in Wisconsin, we have a law that says, actually two laws that say these quasi-governmental corporations are subject to both the open records law and the open meetings law. At least if they're run by a board, their meetings would be subject to the law. So what is a quasi-governmental corporation? Well, the statute doesn't define the term like a lot of statutes do. So it left it up to courts to, uh, to decide how to define a quasi-governmental corporation, which I'm going to be saying way too many times today, I think. So back in 2008, this wasn't that long ago, the Wisconsin Supreme Court created a multi-factor test. So there's five factors here, and none of them by themselves is determinative. They're supposed to consider all of them together. So number one is, is it funded by public dollars, and how much is it funded by public dollars? Number two, is it doing a private or a public function? Is it doing the kind of things that government entities usually do? Number three, does it present itself as a governmental uh, operation? Does it present itself to the public and say, yes, we are part of the government? Or does, does the government say they are a part of us? Four, is it controlled by government? So are there government members or officials on the board or is it subject to control by the city council or something like that. Number five is kind of like the public question, can the government officials access their records? The idea there is if government officials have the right to see these private records, then the public should too. So you often see these applied in the realm of like public-private partnerships. Government is 
paying money to another entity, to a corporation to do something for it, not as like a vendor, like I'm hiring you to clean my, uh, you know, you, I hire a janitorial service to clean a government building, not like that, but to do something as if it were the government. So this case I talked about from 2008 was about an area development corporation in Beaver Dam. And this, what it did was you spend tax dollars basically to make a particular district area better by you know funding improvements to the facilities, streets, by promoting things. And the court looked at it and said, well, it's 100% funded by tax dollars. It has an office inside the city building. It shows up on the city website. City officers were on the board, although not in a, in a controlling number. And their contract with the government said that their records were open to city inspection. So uh, the courts decided that was a quasi-governmental corporation. It was subject to the meetings law, subject to the records law. So give me an example of something that folks might assume is a Quake C, but where it is not and the law, the open records laws actually don't apply. Yeah, it's often hard to tell. So these things do come to court. And just a couple of years ago, there was a case about the Kemper Center, which is uh, in Kenosha County. And it's an entity that leases uh, a building in the park in Kenosha, in Kemper Park, and runs educational and community events and cultural things and kind of has a little Kenosha County historical bit to it as well. And the courts looked at this and said, it is not a QDC. And here's why. First, only about 20% of its funding came from government. So that weighed against it being a QDC. Second, the court looked at what it did. And like I said, it kind of operated a rec department and had educational programs, local cultural events. And it said, yeah, governments do that sometimes, but private entities do that sometimes too. So it's just kind of a, a wash and it doesn't weigh in either direction. Number three, it did not present itself to the public as a government entity, but rather made it clear it was leasing government property and running itself. As far as control goals, only one of the 19 board members was government appointed, so that weighed against being a QDC. But there was one factor that weighed in favor of it being subject to open records laws and meetings laws, is that the lease itself did obligate the records of the Kemper Center to be open to Kenosha County officials. But the court said, we've got one or two that are awash, but we've got two or three that are weighing heavily in favor of not being governmental. So we're going to conclude it's not a governmental company, not a governmental corporation. So for another example, and one that might, you know, hit actually geographically a little closer to home for people, what about private voucher schools? Do those count as a, as a quick C? Yeah, this hasn't been litigated yet, but I think the likely answer is no. So starting with funding, it really depends on the school. Uh, some voucher schools just have a literal handful of students, so they would be very small amounts of funding. Some schools are almost exclusively, so it would be nearly 100%. Education, it's a mixed function. We're very familiar with government running schools, but there have been private schools far longer than there have been government schools. That probably wouldn't weigh in either favor either. Typically, these schools do not present themselves as government schools. They are marketing themselves very specifically as not being the public schools, as being an alternative to the public schools. Typically, government has very limited control. They don't have members on the boards of these schools. There's a little bit from high in the state level, from DPI, some licensing and accreditation to run in the voucher program. But that's true of a lot of private businesses. You know, anybody who has to be licensed or get a permit from the government is subject to the same kind of control. So that doesn't really matter either. And I've never seen a 
an exercise where government can access all of the records of a voucher school. There's a little bit of reporting requirements to DPI to maintain their status as voucher schools, but it's not an, an open book situation. So there's really only one of the five factors that would lean towards government and everything else leans away. So I think in a court case, likely they would conclude that voucher schools are not governmental or quasi-governmental corporations. Well, we could keep going on this, but uh, we've come to our time for this uh, this episode of Transparency Talk. And I want to let you finish up your work so you can go to, uh, on your vacation. Uh, I've been joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, thanks so much for joining me again this week. Always a pleasure. I'm counting hours to leaving for the flight. And remember, people, if you don't ask, you won't know. In 2020, WRT producer Nate Wiggyhout got hooked on a new hobby, one that cast him out into nature while staying COVID safe, fishing. Enter Fishy Business, our newest feature where Nate talks fishing with expert Pat Hansberg of the DNS Bait Shop. This week, they get ready for the fish Wisconsin is most famous for, the muskie. All right, I am on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, how's the fishing been lately? How's the fish been biting? Fishing's been great, Nate. It's uh, there's a lot of great uh, action to be had around town. Perch are snapping on uh, Lake Mendota, and the gills are snapping on Monona and Wabisa, along with the muskie action has picked up this week. All right, well, let's start off with that. Where are the uh, where are the muskies hitting these days? Well, on Lake Monona and actually Wabisa, both uh, the south end of both of those lakes have been uh, pretty productive for muskies, and those fish have moved in shallow with this cooler weather that we've had. Uh, they Normally in the summertime, they spend a lot of time out deep in the cooler water, but uh, these cooler temps we've had this, with this gorgeous weather the last couple of weeks uh, have pushed them up shallow, and they've been uh, anglers have been finding them. And that's good for as someone like me who does mostly shore fishing. So uh, that's good to know. So going going a bit from there, let's start off with Lake Mendota. What's been going on? Well, the perch bite uh, continues to be great. There are a lot a lot of perch in the system right now, which um, well, both big and small fish, but that bodes well for the future. Uh, as far as um, numbers go, there's um, a lot of small fish, but uh, if you put your time in and uh, sort through, you can definitely get some some of those 10 and 12 inches that people are looking for. And is there anywhere in particular on Mendota that people are finding these perch? Mostly on the weed edge, the outside weed edge. So it's mostly a boat game, uh, although they are getting some fish from the Tenney uh, breakwall area and the university shoreline too, casting from out there. They've been uh, able to catch some perch from shore, but generally it's an outside weed line game. Uh, so but if you, if you find a weed line, start there. And if you don't find fish right on the weeds, try backing out a little bit into all the way out to 20 or 25 feet. Even I've heard uh, they've been getting some fish. All right. Now, I know you mentioned uh, the bluegill over on Lake Monona. What's going on over there? Well, that's uh, th- those bluegills have moved into their summer patterns. And what that means is, well, they start out in the spring spawning in the shallows, and then they kind of move out to 10 or 15 feet of water and hang out in the weeds through June and then about July they start to move out even deeper out into the main lake so folks are finding them now just drifting out over the main lake you can you could be in 30 feet of water you can be in 70 feet of water and you're going to find fish 
basically all over the lake, just drifting around in a boat, and you drop a jig down anywhere from 15 to 20 feet, and that's where those fish are hanging out in the in the thermocline, where the cold water meets the warm water, and that's where those fish are most comfortable, and they're just everywhere in the lake. Monona, lake Monona has been a, a bluegill factory for years, and, and uh, that, that remains to be the case. And you mentioned that in sort of June or July there, I should say, they start to move out to the uh, deeper areas of the lake. When will when will they be coming closer near to shore? Well, I, I guess I, I sort of misspoke. I, they, it's not to say that there aren't bluegills still in shallow, but the majority of them are out deep, and they'll be out there until the water turns uh, cold again. Uh, but not, not ice cold, but I would say September, end of September here, They'll start to move back in shallow, wherever they're most comfortable. So they're, they're just, like I said, trying to find that mix between the hot water that's up high and the cold water that's a little deeper. And uh, right now the water that's in shallow generally is too warm for them. But there are definitely still bluegills in shallow. I, I'm just saying the majority of them are out over that deep water. Right, right. So the they'll be coming back for the fall here. Fish that are coming after my own heart here. Big fans of fall. So let's let's go. Uh, let's look at one more here. Let's look at uh, Lake Caganza over there. What's going on on Caganza? Well, you know my shop's on the north side of town, and Caganza's on the far end of the chain. So. I don't get a lot of reports out of Kaganza. Earlier in the year, uh, they were getting fish on the weed line, some good bluegill and perch action down there. Uh, some white bass uh, were being caught all over the lake. That's a great ba- lake for white bass and yellow bass. But, uh, you know, I, uh, to be honest, I haven't heard a lot coming out of there lately. I have heard about some walleyes being caught out from the state park area. Um, but other than that, it's been pretty quiet from what I can hear. But uh, I'm sure if you were down there, I would focus again on the weed lines, uh, look for fish in that 15 to 20 foot range uh, is, is a pretty safe bet for finding both bluegills and perch. Not, not a lot of crappies in Kiganda as far as I know. Pat, we were talking a little bit before we started recording here, and I can I can affirm uh, not a too too much happening over on Kaganza. At least when I was out there uh, last week, although I was certainly not ten to fifteen feet out. So, looking at one last body of water here, we're looking at Wabisa. What's happening over on Lake Wabisa? Well, like I mentioned earlier, the muskie bite's been really strong, generally on the south end of the lake, but uh, just like on Monona, they're getting fish in that fifteen to twenty feet of water. Uh, right on the weed lines, some fish up shallow, but uh, also suspended out over deep water. Uh, the walleye bite has been good out from Babcock Park. A lot of folks are trolling out there uh, with crawler harnesses, um, but also getting walleyes jigging around the Hog Island area, which is a little, it's actually not an island at all, it's a peninsula that's out from uh, Lake Farm Park on the west northwest end of the lake. All right, Pat, we're coming up against the clock here once again. So just to wrap things up, any final fishing advice for people out there, anywhere in particular that you're looking at these days? Well, I was actually just out trout fishing today, and uh, the hopper bite is fantastic right now. Uh, So I use a fly rod, and um, anything that imitates a grasshopper is uh, really effective this time of year, and that bite will continue on until we start to get those first couple hard frosts. So right into October, no problem, and it's a it's a really great time. Get out and explore some streams, and trout live in beautiful places. So that's the other um, nice thing about those fish. So even if you don't catch any, you're at least out exploring some beautiful areas. 
I know a little bit to the west of us, there's all sorts of great trout streams over there. But that will have to wait until next week. Patrick, thank you so much again for talking with me this week. You can hear an updated fishing report anytime you want just by calling one simple number. Easy to remember. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Patrick, thank you and uh, good luck out there. Thanks so much, Nate. You too. It's 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. August 15th marks the day when it seems like every renter in Madison plays a game very similar to musical chairs, but with all their stuff. So many play this game that it's become a local holiday we affectionately call Hippie Christmas. Now, what renters can't or won't take with them ends up in piles on curbs around town. The rule of thumb, the closer you are to a college or university campus, the more stuff you'll find. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields revisits a lovely day in August of 2013 when her dear friend and local musician Pete Kaysberg split town hippie Christmas style. The thing I've really been realizing the last few days that's ridiculous is the amount of TVs I've always had. And right now, I've gotten rid of a couple, recycled them to the city by paying 10 bucks a piece. I realize I still have seven more. So, you want a TV? No, <laughs> um, I do not. Because I just paid $60 to get a television out of my house that I didn't even want in the first place. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of TV. Um, I always have been. I have absolutely no shame about being a fan of TV. Granted, there's a lot of crap on TV, but... Um, but and, one uh, TV is enough to watch. Why seven? Um, so over the past two or three years, I've been accumulating small TVs from garage sales and side of the road, and I was going to build myself a shelving system of TVs. I hear I was going to, so did you? I did not, no. You know, any hoarder will tell you that the reason that they have stuff is because they think they might use it later. You know, they won't throw away a little piece of paper with a phone number on it, or or in my case, magazines has been a big thing. Um, I've recycled at least three to four, if not more, full recycling bins of magazines just in the last week. And um, the big thing I recycled today was um, my TV guide collection. And um, Why so, would you keep so, a TV guide? What was it? Because I never threw away magazines at all. And my old roommate, Andy Mayer, when he lived here, we had the subscription together and we started saving them then. And it's just one of those things when you live in a huge house and you kind of have those tendencies of not throwing stuff away. If you have room for it, why throw it out? And the fact that I never moved 
and uh just i mean all this stuff is coming back to bite me in the butt right now but it just it's the way things went and uh but the one thing that i didn't get rid of is all my modern drummers and i've had those for many years and i kept i keep finding those in different spots around the house but i boxed all those up and and pretty much brought them all up to eau claire already so i have boxes and boxes full of magazines that i moved from here to eau claire which is ridiculous how many times have you used and looked through those magazines oh never never at all and uh that's that's another sign of like someone with hoarding tendencies it's is it's it's ridiculous to save that stuff because you'll never you wouldn't have enough time to get around to it even if you wanted to i've read enough about hoarders to know that uh that i have some of those tendencies and um you know no one would necessarily come into my house and, and know that or see it but that's because some of it i kept relatively well hidden how has living in this house have you seen changes in you over these 22 years i don't think i've changed very much and that's why right now is a big change for me and i think being a musician kind of keeps you in a state of arrested development because you're always musician is especially a rock musician is kind of a young person's job so if you keep doing it throughout your life i'm almost 50 years old you tend to always have a a fair amount of if not friends cohorts that are young like in their 20s you know so um, another thing that i've been going through and finding that i've always saved is band posters um so and posters in general you know that remind me of you know other times or past gigs or you know past tours or or whatever you know things that i enjoyed and kind of still want to keep keep in my mind and uh, today i just found a, a folder that had um you know it was all the stuff from a trip that i took to arizona a few years ago to see one of my favorite bands that i never got to see and i kind of thought that all that stuff was gone and lo and behold it was just at the bottom of a pile and uh i threw it in my pile of stuff to move instead of uh stuff to toss and uh in uh but you know one of the things that i learned that was kind of interesting from reading up on hoarders is there's a concept of churning and churning is when you take a pile of stuff and don't get rid of anything but you uh rearrange the order of it and maybe throw away a couple things but essentially keep the pile and uh but you still feel like you've done something positive even though you really haven't done anything at all so i've churned <laughs> i've hoarded <laughs> and uh hopefully i'm getting over that after all these years and my back hurts <laughs> Moving is, is not only, it's just as much obviously physical as it is mental. And I think, you know, they're both positive things though. I think the biggest move you've made in your, is, is, to, is that whole, is the realization that you do live in a state of arrested development mm -hmm. and how all this is changing. Yeah. When you realized that, was that a moment where you kind of like, damn, I'm deep. Yeah, I don't know how deep I thought I was, but, you know, my girlfriend always sort of, you know, when she first saw my room, she's like, you have a room of like a 12-year-old boy. And um, then I had my birthday, and she's like, no, you've just turned 13. And now we figure that I've maybe about 14 or 15 at this point. But uh, my dad always referred to me as the world's oldest teenager, and I think I still am. <laughs> but once you leave us, Pete, who will be our new Peter Pan? Um, that's a good question. I'll try to find someone for you. Yeah, I that I really don't know. I don't think that's my responsibility. I think if other people uh, want to find that person, they can find him. But uh, 
it's it's not gonna be me. <laughs> and it is funny that my name's Peter because huh. <laughs> For W O R T, I'm Jennifer Fields. That's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Emily K. Singer. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester, Tom Kamenick, and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, don't miss an episode of WORT's Local News. You can get it as a podcast wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.